I've got three kids. Uh, two of them are right here, Gracie and Haddon. They're the best. And then Eden's downstairs. Uh, and I remember with each of the kids, if you're a parent in the room, you probably relate to this, that Chris and I would spend hours and hours talking about what we thought our kids were gonna look like. You know what I mean? Like, would they have your features or mine? I mean, we're both kind of have some darker hair and features. We figured they'd look like that or, or, or not only just like, um, you know, physically, but like uh, personality-wise, what would they be like? Um, would they be extroverted like me or would they be calm and steady like Kristen? Would they be musical like me or would they be crafty and, and thoughtful like Kristen? And you know, just all that, all that stuff. It was so fun to dream about what our kids would be like what they would what they would look like what they would turn out to be and um, and then and then they were born right and then you're like oh my gosh and I remember Gracie was so much bigger than we thought like she was like almost nine pounds and we're like how did that happen like looking at my wife and we're like I don't that's crazy and then Haddon was a lot more fair skin than we than we thought he had kind of lighter hair and then Eden had like my brown eyes and dimples and I'm like yes she's got something of me they all look like her you know this whole thing and and uh, and then they and then they grew up and then they're having their own little personalities now. And Eden is like, just like Kristen, she's like got this quiet demeanor. But then once you get comfortable, like her mom, she's like, oh, let's loose. And she's kind of crazy, you know? And then Haddon's like so affectionate and just like captures the heart of everybody. And Gracie's empathetic and she's a natural leader and she's ambitious. It's just been so fun as a parent. I'm sure any parent can, can relate to watch your kids grow up and to see the different features they have of you and of your spouse and, 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 and what they're turning out to, to be. Now, in Genesis uh, 3, 2 and 3, the first two humans, Adam and Eve, sin. They, uh, they break the law of God, and because of that, they get kicked out of the garden, and they get separated from God's presence. And so um, while they're kicked out, God makes a promise to them. Um, that it's not the end of the story. I'm going to promise, because he's infinitely gracious, he says, I'm going I'm to provide a son. I'm gonna provide a son that's gonna come and he's gonna redeem everything that you broke. He's gonna fix all that you had ruined. He's gonna redeem and restore rebels back to God. That's what this son is gonna do. He's gonna crush the head of the serpent, the one who tricked you into sinning. And so uh, there's this there's this beautiful promise. And so for thousands of anticipating years, uh, they're just waiting for this son that was promised in Genesis 3. When, when, when's he gonna come? But the question became, well, what's he going to be like? If this son's going to come and he, he's, going to, he's going to restore and he's going to redeem and he's going to fix what we ruined, what's he going to be like? You know, it's that same question that Chris and I had as our, uh, the babies were in the womb. What are, they, what are they going to be like? What do they look like? And there's uh, tons of prophecies and verses in the Old Testament about what this son would be like. Um, but again, you, you know, if nowadays you can have like this high-tech 3D picture and imaging of what your kid's going to look like in their face, and you can know their weight and their length and all that, but there's nothing that quite compares to seeing them in person. Just what an image before can't do than when you get to see them out of the womb. And it's the same for Jesus. And so this thing, uh, this reality, Christmas is this culmination of answering the question, what is God like? And what's this son like that he promised thousands of years ago? And, um, and so this God that stepped into humanity, not as a prestigious prince or a famous influencer or a wise sage, but coming in as a helpless baby, what will he be like? And so in our time, brief time together today, not this morning, today, uh, I would love um, to point out how different this son was than what I think they had expected, what they had anticipated him to be. And subsequently, how is this baby 
born in a manger 2,000 years ago, God, fully God, fully human, wrapped up in this little baby. How is he different than what we think he ought to be? or that we think he would be, or that we think he is. And so to wrestle with those realities of who God has shown himself to be, who he is, and how we maybe have some things off in that space. So we're gonna look at his face and his voice and his presence. So we'll start with uh, his, his face. So Luke 2, if you've got your Bibles, amazing, you can open them. I think we'll have it up on the screen too, but I'll read one, cha- uh, chapter 2, 1 through 7. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, which is engaged. Um, uh, And um, she was with, who was with child, she's pregnant. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, Verse seven, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So the first thing I wanna point out is just the low-hanging fruit is that the promised son is finally here. Like, praise God, amazing, he's finally here. Uh, I remember month six into Kristen's pregnancies with the kids, she was like, I'm ready to deliver. I'm like, I don't wanna be pregnant. You know, I just wanna see this baby, I'm done, this belly, can't tie my shoes, the whole thing, right? And so can you imagine waiting thousands of years thousands of years uh, for this moment, and yet he's finally here. The wait is over. God's son that he promised in Genesis 3 is finally here that we read in Luke chapter 2. And, um, but if you track with me, for such a highly anticipated, long-awaited event, doesn't these verses, don't these verses just seem odd to you? Like the way this story played out, if you think like you have so much time to prepare for this, you have so much time to wait for this, don't you think it would come in a different fashion? I mean, he doesn't come from a well-known family, from a well-known place. Verse four says his parents are from Nazareth, which is kind of like an armpit of a small town, you know? And then, uh, and then he goes on, his parents don't have the finances or connections to even provide or get a place to birth this baby and house him. And then verse five says that they're engaged. So most scholars agree that Mary is probably around 16 uh, years old and he's late in a manger, which is a literal feeding trough for animals. So I don't know about you, but to me, it just seems backwards. Like, like, like how did this long-awaited son end up in this random scenario? It almost feels like, man, did this slip out of the sovereignty of God and it just all happened? Like, did Mary's water break and God was distracted with something else and they just had the baby? Well, Galatians 4 says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. So this, what we just read, Luke 2, to God is the fullness of time. It wasn't out of his sovereignty. Nothing is. It was in his providence to have this very specific moment in this very specific way to bring his son that he promised in Genesis 3 into the world through this particular sense. But I want us to pause and picture the scene of verse seven. So verse seven says, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for him in the inn. So Mary, this teen mom, is poor and unknown, yet chosen by God to deliver God's son, Jesus. Um, Hands down, best moment of my life was when my daughter, Gracie, was born about six years ago, January 17, 2017. And, uh, you know, it's our first child. I love the other two. They're amazing. But there's something special about the first of just like, what am I going to feel like? And what's it going to be like? And what's she going to look like? And all that anticipation. And then she's born. And I 
I like, you know, your my te- my face is soaked with tears and so are Kristen's. And it was almost like I couldn't breathe. And yet I was like filled with oxygen. It was just like this amazing moment of shock that this is mine. And God allowed us to make her and she's here and she's right in front of us. And, um, and it's just, it's awesome. And, and then, but I think my favorite moment from within that moment was that this has happened for all the kids. But once uh, when she was born, uh, they, they lay her on Kristen's chest to get like a skin, skin, skin to skin connection with her mom. And it's this intimate, beautiful, like sweet moment where Kristen's, you know, she's exhausted and she's tired and she's, and she's, and it's in, she's in pain. And yet there's this baby that she's been growing for nine months and just this unique connection that just gets to lay, lay on her chest in that moment where I get to watch my wife look at my daughter in this intimate moment um, where she's like, you're mine, you know, and I, and I worked for that, you know, it's like this, what a gift. Um, it's amazing. It's beautifully unforgettable. Now, in Luke 1, just a chapter ago, an angel comes to Mary and says, hey, Mary, you're actually going to give birth to the Savior of the world. You know that son in Genesis 3 that you've all been waiting for, it talks about in Isaiah 7 and all in Daniel 7, all this, you're actually going to be the, the mom who births him. And, uh, and he's gonna have a kingdom that never, never stops. He, his reign will never end. And if I'm and Mary, I can't, I just assume she's like, okay, he's probably gonna come out with, like glowing with glory, you know, or like a little crown or extra clean and perfect. And yet he was born, he's just a normal baby, you know, just like the rest of us. Um, but I want you to picture the moment when Jesus is laid on his mother's chest. When she gets to hold him, the same woman that he created and he formed in her mother's womb is now holding him as a helpless baby. And Mary is exhausted, no doubt, from delivery, probably disappointed that she couldn't find a better place to deliver um, God's son, the savior of the world. And then, but as she, as he lays on her chest, she stares into his face. She looks into the face of God. And here's why this is indescribably shocking. Because in Exodus 33, God and Moses are talking. Now Moses is a leader chosen by God to free his people from Israel and lead them through the wilderness. And Moses asks God, can I see your glory? Like, can, just, just, can, I, can I see it? Which is, feels like a dangerous question to ask. And this is how God responds in Exodus 33, 20 through 23. God says to Moses, you can't see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and I'll cover you with my hand until I've passed by. And when I, when I have, I'll take my hand away and you shall see my back, but you shall not see my face. My face shall not be seen. So listen, City Light, Mary got to see the face that Moses wasn't allowed to. Moses, Mary got to see the face of God that Moses wasn't allowed to. So if there was anyone in the whole Old Testament that I would maybe put my money on that could see the face of God, it would be Moses. They spend 40 nights and days together on Mount Sinai talking. Moses comes down the mountain, his face is glowing. Like if there's anybody, I mean, God did so many amazing things to this man. And yet the first person allowed to see the face of God isn't an old man, it's a young woman. The first person allowed to see the face of God isn't some decorated religious hero. It's a humble teenage mom. 
The first person to see the face of God isn't in a church or in the temple. They're in a barn with animals. It's like, this is, this is unthinkable. This is so unique and, and beautiful. Mary got to see the face of God that Moses wasn't allowed to. What's this son going to be like? They asked for a thousand of years. Personal and intimate and knowable and incomprehensibly humble, revealing himself to the most unlikely people, shining his face on those that the world has darkened theirs. That's his face. The next thing is his voice. So Mary gets to look into the face of God that Moses wasn't allowed to. And so after thousands of years of anticipation, God's son is finally born, the one we've been waiting for to redeem what we had wrecked. And who's gonna be a part, who's gonna get invited to this party? Who's gonna know first about this crazy thing that's finally happened? Is it gonna be the, 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 the religious leaders, you know, to dedicate uh, him and do all the spiritual jargon? Ooh, maybe it's gonna be the rich people to bring him good gifts, or uh, it'll probably be the popular people to get the word out. Nope, none of them. Look at Luke 2, we'll read 8 through 20. The story continues. And in the same region, remember, this is the fullness of time, uh, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who's Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there's with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. So picture the scene. Lowly shepherds um, are working the night shift with dirty sheep, uh, making sure they don't get eaten. That's their job. Uh, they're at the bottom of society, considered religiously unclean. And an angel comes to them and tells them that the son they've been waiting thousands of years for is here. He's finally here. The wait is over. Uh, praise God. And, um, and so these shepherds don't get invited to many things. And so of course they're like, yeah, let's go. Let's go check this thing out. And again, this is speculation, but I wonder if on their way, they're like, I wonder who else got invited to this thing. You know, like the angels probably invited like all the rest of the people. And they're like, ah, we feel bad about leaving the shepherds out. So let's invite them. But they're like, I don't know if we get there, it's gonna be packed, we'll even see anything, but we're just thankful to get a pity invite. But they go, you know, and they, and they come upon this reality. And remember, it's night. That's what it says. They're working the night shift. And they don't have GPS back in the day. They don't have addresses like we would know them. And the only coordinates that the shepherds get from the angels is there's a baby in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. Okay, go. And they're like, ah, uh, okay. So they're scurrying through town at night. Like, don't just think this is immediate. Like, or it's like they had to actually search for this. And all they know is He's swallowing cloths, lying in a manger. By the way, why would the son of God come and he's in the manger thing? It just seems weird. Why is he not in a crib or a bed or a house or whatever? And so they're looking, they're looking and they hear a cry as, as they're searching. They hear a cry. That must be him. That must be the baby. And verse uh, 16 says they found him. 
They went with haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Verse 20 says, the shepherds left praising God for all they had heard and seen. God invited them into being the first witnesses of this son, um, aside from Mary and Joseph. So here's why this is significant. The Old Testament, your Bible is separated into two halves. The Old Testament, which is really pre-Jesus, which Jesus is still fully existent as God in these, but pre-him, his birth. And then it tracks the New Testament would be his life, his story, his death, his resurrection, the birth of the church in letters. And, uh, and so anyways, you get, this, you get this split between the Old Testament and New Testament. Now, the Old Testament has 39 books in it, and it starts with creation and Genesis, and it tracks through covenants and promises and failures and redemption and, and more failure and poetry and kings and prophets. And it's this wild, beautiful story that God is writing. But the Old Testament ends with the book of Malachi. Now, at the end of Malachi um, is this verse, verse five, that is anticipating Jesus, and it talks about the great and awesome day the Lord comes. Um, but Malachi is the end of the Old Testament uh, before we get it picked up into the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So that period between Malachi and Matthew is 400 years, what church theologians have called the 400 silent years. Uh, and in those 400 years, God didn't, God didn't speak to his people. There's no scripture written. There's no prophets raised up. A prophet was a man or woman that God chose, spoke to, and spoke through. He would tell them what he wants the people to know, and they would go relay the message off to other people. And, uh, and in those 400 years, we have no record of God speaking. They're the silent 400 years. And so uh, obviously that would produce anxiety for God's people, right? It's problematic because they're going, we, God, God creates with his voice. In Genesis 1, he says, let there be light and there's light. God promises with his voice. He corrects with his voice. He guides with his voice. He does all this stuff that he does with his voice. And for 400 years, he chooses not to use his voice toward his people that don't hear him. And if you're Israel, his people, you're like, we really need his voice, where are we going off? Why, where do we need corrected? Where's the promises and the reminder? Why isn't he speaking anymore? It probably produced worry and anxiety. When is God gonna break the silence? Um, and, uh, and he finally breaks the silence. And to break it, for all the people to hear the voice of God again after 400 years, it's not with a new promise. It's not to create. It's not to make a new command. Um, the voice of God that once created the universe finally breaks the silence. And who hears it? Dirty shepherds. And what do they hear? The incoherent cries of a baby. Nothing understandable. The shepherds got to hear the voice of God that people have been waiting 400 years in silence for. And that were, was the incoherent cries of an infant. And while his infant cries and babbling and coos can't be understood, um, he was saying something. He was communicating something. I'm here. Like, I'm God with you. I can relate to your experience. I can empathize. I know what it feels like to cry and need help. I know, I know now in that unique sense. And so the venerable voice of God who created every language spoken in the world is speaking, breaking the silence in wordless cries, babbling, and coos and the shepherds get to hear it, which means he's speaking to anyone who's willing to listen. Just like the shepherds coming dirty from life, God invites us to hear his voice that breaks the silence. 
And lastly is present. So Mary gets to see the face of God that Moses wasn't allowed to. And the shepherds get to hear uh, the voice of God break the 400 years of silence. And it's the babbling cries of a infant. And there's one more shocking reality to what this son would be like. Um, We'll continue to read in Luke 2, uh, 22 through 32. And when the time came uh, for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it's written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Um, And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation little baby, that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people, Israel. So um, Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple. This is a Jewish custom for the firstborn baby to kind of be dedicated uh, to the Lord. And so they do that. They run into Simeon. God revealed to Simeon, hey, dude, you're not going to die until... until Christ comes back until this son is born. And so if I'm Simeon, I'm like, I'm going as fast as I can. I'm skydiving. I'm eating whatever I want. You know, I'm like, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not going to die until I see the baby. No, he, he's probably way more responsible than that. But uh, he's, uh, so he's, he's like, this is going to happen. And he says, I can depart in peace. It, I finally, and so they run into each other in the temple and he goes, that's him. That's the baby. And Jesus didn't have like this, I'm here onesie on him, like the son of God, you know, it's like, but he knew this is, this is it. He's anointed and he, and he blesses God by grabbing Jesus, holding him and going, this, I've seen salvation. This, this baby's gonna save sinner. And he says, to be a light to Gentiles around the world, this idea that God's gonna save all types of people all around the world. And by the way, we're talking Bethlehem in the Middle East, we're in Lincoln, Nebraska. Like it's, this is fulfilled. We're fulfilled in, we're a fulfillment of that, prom, that promise and that reality that Simeon was talking about. So that's what's gonna happen with this baby. But the verse that's been shocking to me over and over again this week is verse 28. Um, verse 28 says, he took him up in his arms. He took him up in his arms and he blessed God. Um, Here's why that surprises me and it should surprise you. Like the face and voice of God, God's presence was deeply powerful. And when I talk about his presence, I'm not talking about his omnipresence, which his omnipresence is the fact that he's everywhere at all times. There's nowhere you can run, nowhere you could run that God wouldn't be there. In Psalm 139, David lists all these places, you know, uh, the heaven, Sheol, the sea, the air, all these places and the resounding statement is, you're there. So there's nowhere I could go that God wouldn't be there. He's omnipresent. His presence is everywhere. And yet the Bible also talks about God's particular presence where we get to experience his presence manifest in a unique way. And so in the Old Testament, in Exodus, God has Moses and some others build what's called the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was this visual box representation of God's holy presence dwelling with his people. And there was different things in the Ark uh, of the Covenant and it was known as the holy place or the holy of holies. So there's the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence dwelling with his people. Now, once a year, uh, most of the time, this Ark of the Covenant was dwelling in the tabernacle, by the way. But once a year, the high priest, the most like the head honcho dude, would get to go into the Ark of the Covenant, into the Holy of Holies, and would get to sacrifice 
for the sins of the people. But before he went in, he had to do a whole cleansing process to get his heart right, because if he went in wrongly, he would die. Check this out. Uh, Church historians have drawn out the fact that they would often tie a rope around the high priest's leg, because if he goes in there and he's not right, he's gonna drop dead because his presence is so holy. And if you're sitting out there, picture me and you and a couple other people are hanging out and he's doing his thing. We're like, man, I'm grateful for that. Hopefully it goes well because I got some sin I got need taken care of. And you're waiting and then you hear a thud and you're like, it's like, I'm not going in. You know, like, I, you know, like let's rock, paper, scissors. Because you're not, that dude died. He's the top dog. I'm not the top dog. If the top dog died, I'm definitely going to die if I walk in there. So they would tie this rope around his leg and they would literally, if they heard the thud, yep, another one gone. You know, well, hopefully next year goes better and they'd pull him out. But the point is that that's how holy God's presence is. That's how big his presence is. In fact, the ark had to be moved. And in 1 Chronicles 13, the ark is getting moved, oxen are pulling it, and an oxen stumbles, and, it's, and the ark kind of looks like, seems like it's in a tilt, and this guy named Uzzah will go, reaches out and grabs it, grabs hold of the ark so it doesn't fall. And because he wrongly touches the ark, he dies. Because he wrongly reaches out, even though it seemed like a right motive, and grabs on to the representation of God's presence in a wrong way, he dies in an instant. And so in light of that, let's reread Luke 2, 28. Simeon took him up in his arms. Simeon got to hold the God in his arms that killed Uzzah for wrongly touching the Ark of the Covenant. The God who dwelt behind a veil that the high priest was permitted once a year to go in, that had a rope around his leg, is being held in the arms of this man. And catch this, he doesn't die. Do you see how bizarre this is? Like if you were to go to Uzzah's mom and go, hey, I wanna let you know I'm so sorry about your son, but now God is holdable. He's touchable. You could could kiss him. He's, He's a baby. He's here. I mean, the immense shock and humility. I mean, it's like, it's wild. But without Jesus, the presence of God is dangerous. Each of us have insurmountable sin in our lives that's created a gap between us and God that we couldn't close on our own. All our efforts to clean up our act and it just, they were ultimately futile. We couldn't claw up the hill. We couldn't make our way up the moral mountain. We couldn't bridge the gap. Without Jesus, we're drenched in sin from head to toe. Without Jesus, our souls are exploding with sin. Um, And as sinners stepping in the presence of God, we melt under his righteous wrath. And then there's this baby that's born and he's holdable. And he grows up to be called a friend of sinners. He literally invites the most notorious rebels to be his best friends. So what's that mean? That sinners far from God can come near. That Jesus, the innocent baby in a manger, uh, eventually became a man on the cross. That when he dies, that veil separating us from the presence of God 
gets torn. Matthew 27 says it's torn. Catch this, from the top to the bottom. It's God displaying, ripping, going, no, it's not for once a year, the high priest. It's for all people, a teenage mom, a dirty shepherd, a simian. For you, for me, people in Lincoln, Nebraska, the presence of God is here in the midst of holy sinners. And we don't uh, melt under his wrath. We get wooed by his love. And we go, I mean, I got so much sin. And he goes, I know, but I died for all of it. That's the beautiful reality of this. And so it's the same idea we get from Simeon holding Jesus, God being himself present among sinners so that sinners could be in the presence of God by Jesus's righteousness. So whatever list you have of reasons why you feel unlovable to God, he's ripping that up. Whatever wall you have built up that goes, I just don't know it, he's tearing it down. That's the beauty of this baby. Now, uh, when I was 11 years old, I was living in California, and uh, my friend and I just kind of were innocently messing around, not realizing the gravity of it. We got caught breaking into a school and vandalizing it. And so because of that, uh, we got, I got convicted of a felony at 11 years old, and, um, and I had three years of probation and 150 hours of community service. My mom, trying to straighten me out probably, was like, um, yeah, you're going to do community service at a church. And I was reluctant, right? Because church to me felt like it was, a, it was a country club. It was a place that good people went. It was a place that good people went to get better. It was a place that moral people gathered together to talk about how moral they were. And Jesus really just felt like a, a God that played favorites, that just liked people that were good. And I clearly wasn't good, right? And so I go there head hanging low, ashamed, this kind of shady 11-year-old dude with a felony on his record and um, just trying to get my stuff done and whatever. And they just slowly, very mundanely preached the gospel to me. I don't even remember who it was, an old woman, a pastor, another kid, I don't know, but they slowly taught me about this Jesus of the Bible that I had had a totally wrong understanding of. That this, this kind of concept that I had that churches for perfect people was so off. And they, they had told me, listen, if you could be perfect, Jesus never would have had to come. The, the reason Jesus had to come and make his way to you is because you couldn't make your way to him. And it was like this wrestle in my soul of going, man, the Jesus in the Bible is different than the Jesus I've come to believe. And he's infinitely more gracious and he's, and he loves me, although I feel unlovable and he's, and he's for me, although the world seems to get, you know, all this stuff was just shocking to me about realizing who Jesus really was and how different he was and how I had thought and expected. And 20 years later, I'm a pastor and uh, who would have thought I'm a husband and a dad by his grace. And I'm looking at all that going in that same thing that happened to me at 11 years old of my view of Jesus hitting up against the view of the Bible of who he really is and going, what am I gonna do? Am I gonna just bank on what I culturally believe or what the Bible says and this reality where he's so much bigger and more beautiful than I think, what am I gonna do? And that's the same thing that you're presented with today. Christmas is bringing clarity to God. It's saying, man, you may not know who he is. You may have some thoughts and, and perceptions, but I'm telling you who he is. If you wanna know who God is, look no further than the baby in the manger. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. So Christmas is bringing clarity to our confusion. All the things we think, is God gonna be like this? Maybe he's this and it's going, no, you wanna know what he's like? Look at the manger, look at the baby. It's normal for us to hold a baby. 
and see its face. It's normal for us to hear it cry. It's normal for us to, to hold it. And yet to hear the God of the universe cry, to hear, to see the God of the universe's face and hold him in your arms, it's totally shocking. And it's telling this reality that God has come near to sinners. And you've got a choice. It doesn't matter if you've been a believer for 50 years or you have come to church for the first time in the last 50 minutes. The reality is we've all got some slight misconceptions of who God really is. And Christmas brings clarity. You wanna know who God, who he is? Look at the baby in the manger. This infinitely inexhaustibly loving God humbled himself to come down as a baby and be held by the ones he made. And he would grow up to be nailed to a cross and die for you and I. This is it. And you get, a, you get, you get the option of how to respond. Am I gonna see him for who he truly is or am I gonna hold on to my, uh, my little perception, my misconceptions? And so he blows us out of the water. It's beautiful. So friends, I hope as you enjoy Christmas that tonight, tomorrow, for the rest of our lives, we would just kind of submit to the Bible and go, God, tell me who you really are, because it's so much better than I thought you to be. So we get to, as believers, we get to look at his forbidden face. We get to hear his venerable voice. We get to experience his powerful presence because we've been brought close by his grace. And um, what a gift. And all who aren't, the invites come. Come, and just like the shepherds, dirty, wounded, messy, broken, come and see who Jesus really is. Let's pray.